Would you join me, please, in Ephesians 4? The text is up on the screen. We're just going to look at one verse, verse 7. Ephesians 4, verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is God's Word. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I thought we'd take this as a final sermon text because I was taking you through Ephesians anyway, and this would have been the next passage. We'd have looked at more than just this verse. But it's a good last word between us because, um, well, it includes two of my favorite things, grace and Christ. And that's what I want my emphasis to be going out the door with you. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now let's take that word gift and let's work it through Ephesians in order to, to, see, um, to see it more clearly. Christ's gift that 4-7 ends with here includes spiritual gifts. As the passage goes on, you get mention of spiritual gifts. Verse 8 says, when Christ ascended on high, he led a coast of captives. He gave gifts to men. And then when you get into verse 11, Paul begins to flesh out the grace gift of Christ to us that saves us from sin in the way that the gift now serves the body. And so you look at verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the gift language that we're looking at in chapter 4, verse 7 here, includes spiritual gifts as the passage unfolds. But we've had some previous looks at this word gift already in Ephesians. So to see it, go back to chapter 2, verse 8. Familiar words to a lot of us. Chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so when you come to chapter 4, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's going to flesh that out now in spiritual gifts in the rest of chapter 4. But when we think back to where did we hear gift before in Ephesians chapter 2, that mention of gift, Christ's gift in Ephesians 2, we already know is our salvation. Jesus redeeming us. His personally freeing us from ever having Anything of our unrighteousness or our self-righteousness ever held over us again, exclamation point. The things we're guilty of that God hates, be it the evil we've done or the good we failed to do, these are each and all covered and buried and flung away from us as far as the east is from the west by the extravagant grace of God. You cannot emphasize grace too much to Christians. If there are tears in heaven, there's a reference in Revelation 21 to God wiping away every tear. If there are tears in heaven, maybe they're for how little we really understood of Jesus and his grace in this life. So we already know from Ephesians chapter 2 that gift is primarily about our redemption. Here in chapter 4, as I said, gift unfolds into spiritual gifts to be of service to God, useful to Him. 
But Paul also used the word gift one other time in Ephesians before we get to it here in chapter 4. Look back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel, chapter 3, verse 7, I, Paul, was made a minister according, here it is, to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So now, we take a step back. We're looking at only chapter 4, verse 7, but with that in the background, and then we know how this unfolds. Taking the whole of Ephesians into account, grace is given to make me a member of God's family through Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Grace is given to make me a minister to God's family through Jesus. That's Ephesians 3. And then both of the streams become a river in Ephesians 4. The stream of grace for sin, the stream of grace for service, Ephesians 4, 7. It's a good concluding text on my time as your pastor. A good benediction, let's call it. Benediction is a, is a, is a word of blessing, a word of well-being. And so let this final word be, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And measure, we won't get into that. That's another word that gets developed in the chapter. But essentially, the gift of Christ is measureless. We're just going to focus on two things as this sort of become uh, my method uh, through the years uh, preaching here. Two points, grace and Christ. I'll talk about grace and Christ with you, and then I'll give you three parting exhortations at the end, and that'll be that. So first, grace. Grace was given to each one of us. I have been unbelievably graced to serve the people of God at First of Anne for 18 years this month. Unbelievably graced by God to be able just to do the work of ministry anyway for this to be my livelihood. As Paul said of himself, that he was graced by God to, to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. You know, as the years accumulated here, as you allowed me to grow up in ministry, uh, I came here uh, with just enough experience to be dangerous, and you were patient with me, and you allowed me to grow as a preacher and as a leader, uh, and I'm so thankful for that. And one of the things as I grew, I realized the importance of a gospel-centered ministry, a gospel-set ministry. And I've really aimed at that. And, and when you have a gospel-centered ministry, it means that you make much of the grace of God in Christ. <clears throat> and even though I did that, my last steps here with you, beginning two weeks ago, were not very graceful. I admitted that in my congregational letter. I'm like the guy who comes down the entire flight of stairs until he gets to the last one. He breaks his ankle on that one. And uh, it was a little awkward how uh, it ended two weeks ago. And you may be still wondering, why did that happen? <laughs> why did I have to mention resignation in this hour two Sundays ago and then follow through on it? So awkward. Why did I do that? All I know to tell you is people are not simple. 
I am not simple. You are not simple. Complexity is not an excuse, but it is a reality. It is a truth. We are complex human beings. Our actions don't always make sense to us in the moment. You can think of things. I can think of things. You will struggle to understand people if you're always trying to oversimplify people. We're complex. And when you think this out in the context of grace and Christ, if everything was simple, if everything about you and me was simple, what need do we have for grace? What need do we have for Christ if everything is simple? You know, we even need our awkwardness at times. That's the case Sammy Rhodes makes in his book entitled, This is Awkward, subtitled, How Life's Uncomfortable Moments Open the Door to Intimacy and Connection. Yes, I've read that book. Uh, Rhodes is an RUF minister at the University of South Carolina, and he wrote the book out of a a very humbling season that, that he went through personally himself. And And the first chapter is don't waste your awkwardness. And there he makes the point that awkwardness, things that we consider awkward. He said, you know, awkwardness is really the gap between what we should be and what we actually are. I should have been wiser, we say. I should have known better, we say. Yeah, I should have. But awkwardness is that gap between what we should be and what we actually are. And the beautiful thing about grace is that it's gap-filling. Grace fills so many gaps in our lives. And so to waste your awkwardness, if, if what happened among us was awkward two weeks ago and, and the scenario of, of a senior pastor leaving abruptly, that's awkward. But to waste our awkwardness is to not find the grace in it. To to not see Jesus Christ present to us in it. Sammy Rhodes' words. We will never risk vulnerability unless we believe in the kind of grace that says you are loved where you are. I believe in that kind of grace. I've preached that kind of grace. I believe the kind of grace that says you are loved where you are, is the grace of God to us and for us. And I've tried to teach you that grace. And I'm hopefully standing in it, even in this present awkwardness of a last sermon. Because God can use our mistakes to initiate his will. Um, It's not a mistake that I'm going The mistakes are in how it came about, too abrupt, blindsided my session brothers, whom I love and appreciate. Everything I wrote you in the letter, which I don't have to repeat here, is true. There was no push out. There was no force out. I blindsided these men who I'd been in the trenches with and never wanted to do that to them. I ended up doing the thing to them I never wanted to do. They've been nothing but good to me. And so it's awkward. It's abrupt. But as a friend told me last week, he said, Cole, God God could have done all this differently, but he couldn't have done it better. And what that's a statement of is confidence that God always gets his end result. God always gets what he's after with us. 
God doesn't make us make mistakes so that good results, that would be a deterministic uh, view that I, I don't think is, is worthy uh, of Christians to take. But God isn't hemmed in or thrown off by our complexities. If we believe in the grace of God, think this out with me, then, then there is no mistake, there is no awkwardness God cannot work in and through to bring about his desired outcomes. And I believe that's exactly what has happened here, what's transpired over the last two weeks. I am supposed to close this chapter out and begin a new one. And maybe it didn't need to be abrupt, but it needed to be. It needed to happen. It needed to be a break. Ministry is not a marriage. It's not permanent like marriage. Ministry is transient. There's a shelf life to ministry going in. The, the church is the bride of Christ, not the bride of the pastor. A pastor begins his ministry in a church, and he's got that new car smell, but he's a depreciating asset from the first day. We only have so much time, pastors do, with our churches. And some tenures last longer than others. I am blessed and gratified to have had an 18-year tenure among you. That's very long as pastorates go. In fact, I'm, I'm second in this church only to Salto. I was gunning for T. Stanley Salto. <laughs> I wanted to get to 26 years. I'm, I've been here longest, but I'll always be his number two. But what a guy to be, uh, be behind. Um, uh, of all the appreciation, all the affirmation that I've received over the last two weeks, and I have read every email. In fact, I printed them out. I've read every email. I brought you every card and letter that I've received in two weeks. Um, every text you've sent Every Facebook post you sent to Lynn that she said, you need to come read Facebook. I don't get on Facebook. Come read what people are saying. You know? um, every tweet at me, that's my social media space, Twitter. Of all the thoughts and the words and the feelings that I've processed for two weeks now, the cookie monster is the one who put it best for us all when he tweeted last Monday, me no cry because cookie is finished. Me smile because cookie happened. <laughs> I love that. That is so good. Thank God for the cookie monster. Bringing some wisdom and some grace into my awkwardness. My pastor at First of Ann is cookie happened. I never deserved First of Ann. But you know, that's the point of Grace. God gives us what we don't deserve. So cookie is finished. And there are tears. There have been a lot of tears. But cookie happened. For 18 years, this white chocolate macadamia nut cookie was sweet. It was sweet to be here these years serving you. To raise our children among you, Memphis will always be their home. To uh, watch you love my kids, 
You let me be a dad to them. Uh, You let my wife and my kids be themselves. I've got a grandson now that I love. He's asleep in his mother's arms. And uh, you have been nothing but beautiful to him. That's grace. And that's you. That's you. That's who you are. Thank you for that. And we've cried. I mean, we've smiled too. But reading all your encouragements, just going through the stack and reading encouragements more than once. Um, you know, we've, um, we've cried. Lynn and I have. I've been unable to get through some of them, reading them to her. And she's been unable to get through some of them, reading them to me. Uh, but we've also laughed and we have thanked God for you over and over and over again. And uh, we'll continue doing so upon every remembrance of you. I came here 18 years ago this month flat on the mat. I came from um, a good work I had been involved in helping a church get started, but suddenly there was no room for me in, in that new church and, um, and I needed a place and, and God used a college student at MTSU who was from this church to introduce me to this church. And my first Sunday preaching here, you know, First of Ann was a healing agent in my life. I, I, I did. I came here flat on the mat. I was hurting. And this church was a healing agent. And I remember my first Sunday preaching here. It was February of 03. I was in process being hired. The church was between the ministries of Ronnie and Howard Clark, who was my uh, immediate predecessor. And so in that space, they needed pulpit supply. And um, I was being uh, in the process of being hired for a staff position. I was for four years on the staff here, did men's ministry and adult Sunday school, and, and then became the senior pastor after four years here. That's my 18 years total, four as an associate, 14 as senior. And um, I was asked to preach. I, I was being hired, but wasn't quite hired yet, and, and said, said, could you do pulpit supply? Uh, and I came down here in a, on a February Sunday in 2003, and I remember walking down the hallway. Uh, I don't remember which hallway it was, but I do remember overhearing two people in front of me speaking together, and they, not realizing that I was behind them in an earshot, were talking about the morning speaker. And the one said to the other, who is it that's preaching today? And the other said, I don't know, some guy from Murfreesboro. (laughs) Well, this guy from Murfreesboro, I only lived there two years, Uh, Nashville before that, Alabama before that, really this guy from Memphis, as I will uh, be for here on. Uh, I want to thank you for the grace that I've experienced among you. It's run like a plumb line through my 18 years here, uh, 18 years of marrying you and burying you and baptizing you and counseling you and praying for you and preaching to you and, yes, sometimes preaching at you. But I can say, as Paul said back in chapter 3, 
that I was made a minister here according to the gift of God's grace. And I will never see First of Anne as anything other than a gift that I got to be part of. So this message from Ephesians 4, 7, it has two points. First is grace. And now Christ. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. It is possible to minister to the church in a role like mine, a spotlighted, upfront kind of role, lead pastor, senior minister, senior pastor, however you nomenclature that. I did have to use one big word on the way out, so nomenclature is the word of the day. And um, it's possible to be in a position like mine and actually miss Jesus. It seems crazy. I mean, you assume the pastor would be the guy who is thinking and, uh, you know, talking with Jesus the most. But some pastors spend years in their ministries missing Jesus. And that happens because, you know, pastors do different things. Some of us make it about ourselves. Some of us make it about our brand, sustaining this big impactful vision, you know, that we've come up with. We took the church from here to here, you know. Look at us. Or even uh, it happens, and this, you know, feels closer to the way it ought to be, but it can still be off. Uh, We even make it about theology, you know, having right theology, good teaching. And you could teach the Bible for years and miss Jesus. It's, it's fascinating how this dynamic works out. And I hope I have right theology. But I hope my theology is always in service to making much of Christ because Jesus is everything to God. And I have grown in my love for him pastoring this church. I've also grown in my love for him uh, through things I've had to suffer I've learned in my years here, you don't grow in love for God without suffering some things. Because without suffering some things, your faith, it's all piety. It's all devotional performance. You always have to get it right. And without suffering some things, your love is is all emotion. It's all sentiment. When you suffer some things, Christ either becomes real to you he becomes more to you or he, be, he fades and becomes less to you. And I'm, I'm thankful for me he's become more. I've also grown in my love for the church. Love for Jesus has to include his people. I've, I've tried to teach you that because I believe that. I, I, I came to that belief in this church, not in the previous two churches I served. In the previous two churches I served in a church plant, the, the people are there to, well, to help you grow this thing and to sit back 20 years later and say, wow, you know, we started with this and now look at this. And, and that's wonderful. I'm not taking anything away from those kinds of celebrations, but God had a different purpose for me. Love for Jesus has to include his people. I've tried to teach you that Jesus is not a reluctant Savior. He doesn't wish he never met you. 
He's not barely tolerating you today. The book of Hebrews says, and, and I paraphrase, he's not ashamed to have us in his family, even though he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows us through and through, and yet wants us. Jesus Christ wants you. You know, one of the practical benefits of that seeping down into your heart, a growing love for Jesus, one of the practical benefits of that is that you, you don't fear as much. Fear is a killer. And pastoral ministry contains its share of fears. It's all kinds of fears that plague pastors. The fear that <clears throat> we're going to disappoint somebody. <laughs> we will. It's inevitable. Not aiming at it, but it's inevitable. You can't be in leadership of an organization, an institution. I'm not disappointing people. Pastors fear we won't meet people's expectations. That's also inevitable. We're too varied a group, or too many of us, to not have at times expectations be unmet. In his book, Adorning the Dark, the singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson articulates fears, quote, that whatever that thing is that makes the songs work, in his case, as a singer-songwriter, I substitute sermons for songs, and it works the same. Whatever it is, that, that thing that makes the sermons work, the mystical gas in the engine, it will be cut off. This thing will slow to a trickle and die, and I'll put out an album, in my case, a sermon or an article that people hate. Or, he says, maybe God will finally have had enough of my sin, my pride, my lust, my resentment, my self-centeredness. And if I haven't learned my lesson by now, then he's going to have to take drastic measures and really serve me up some failure on a grand scale. Close quote. But no, it's not like that. Andrew Peterson knows this too. God doesn't serve us failure on a grand scale. Why not? Because Christ. Put it in all caps. Because Christ. And I can tell you that Jesus has become bigger to me in my 18 years here, more sufficient, more trustworthy, and more gracious because I've found that he not only covers my sins, he covers all my awkwardnesses too. That's what it is to serve a gracious God. You know, speaking of awkwardness, um, some months ago I wrote in my weekly email to you about that awkward scene in the Old Testament where Moses struck the rock. <clears throat> it's kind of a weird story. There are two occasions where the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness needed water. And for whatever reason, God decides to, well, I think I know the reason. I'll mention it in a moment. But for whatever reason, going with that thought, God decides to bring the water to the people through a rock, a boulder. And the first time, on the first occasion, he says to Moses, strike the rock, and out of the rock will flow water. And Moses does it, and the people have their water needs met. But then there's a second occasion. And this time God says to Moses, speak to the rock and the water will flow from it. Uh, but Moses was ticked off. He was tired of the complainers and the grumblers and the resistors. And so Moses stood beside that rock 
And he yelled at the people and he struck the rock more than once. And the water came out, but Moses didn't get to go in to the promised land. That was the consequence. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. He got to see it from a distance. But that situation showed Israel that Moses was not the leader the people needed going forward. Joshua was. Moses' actions made room for Joshua. I'm actually greatly comforted by that story. Because in the New Testament, Paul summons that old weird story in the Old Testament to say to the Corinthians, y'all realize that's about Jesus, right? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. Our fathers in the wilderness all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And the point being, Jesus always takes the blows for his people, always. And we love him for that. There is a Joshua somewhere out there for first of Ann. I've made room for him. I am the Moses another church needs. Or a Joshua. Let's see how it works out. But Jesus will always be the one who matters most. May I leave you with three exhortations and we'll consider this a good benediction complete. Number one, none of these are fingers poked in the chest, okay? So sometimes people hear exhortations, oh, and just, we're, just three things to consider. Three points to leave you with. The first is endeavor as a church to build on what you have in common in Christ. That was actually, before I blew up my sermon two weeks ago, that was the point. That <laughs> was in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And until I kind of made it about me, the point was, and that's such a key text for First of Ann, I, I, uh, the whole sermon series was titled after uh, that passage. But that passage <clears throat> is vitally important for First of Ann. It's a vitally important truth for you in your church's history. <clears throat> if you can make central what you have in common in Christ then you have a gospel-centered church where the kingdom of God in all its variety can come and worship in this room the one who obliterates all other divisions. The gospel does not take sides. It takes over. Make much of Jesus here. There is only one hero in this story, one Messiah. Endeavor as a church to build on what you have in common in Christ. Second, don't locate your heaven here in this world. Don't locate your heaven here in this world. The more tied you are to this world and its comforts, the more you try to make this world work for you exactly as you want it to, the more you try to ground your security in this world, the less you enjoy your life. It's counterintuitive, but it's true. It is just those who are most at home in the world to come who do the most lasting good in the world now. And they do it enjoyably. You want to enjoy your life? 
don't locate your heaven here in this world. God is your home. Third and finally, we burn the plow, not the bridge. Now, the imagery of burn the plow also comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the life of Elisha, an Old Testament prophet who followed the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Elijah calls Elisha to follow him. This is 1 Kings 19. You can read it later. And the text says, in receiving this call, Elisha slaughtered his oxen, burned his plow, and set about to following Elijah, and he never looked back. That's the action of slaughtering the oxen and burning the plow. And I think that's a great picture of parting with one thing to give yourself fully to another. Burn the plow. My ministry is the plow in this particular metaphor. Burn it. (laughs) Don't enshrine it. Uh, Certainly don't bring it out to show the next pastor. You know, burn the plow, but not the bridge. The relationships that we have are the bridge, and they don't go anywhere. Relationships remain long after pastoring is complete. For that, we're thankful. Friendship endures. And, you know, some of you I can probably be friends with now because you're no longer intimidated by my title. I've always been just a guy, but I've had this, you know, big title on me. I have this big pulpit. I even have a big black Bible. That is a preacher's Bible right there, isn't it? (laughs) This sucker will give you a forearm workout picking it up. First of Anne, my final words to you are make much of grace. Make much of Christ. And I love you. May I pray? I have been uh, meditating this week on a verse from Psalm 109 and praying this verse for our church the last two weeks. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. And Father, we praise you for what you do, even when it's difficult. We don't blame you for the process. That's, that's on us. That's, uh, that's human. But Lord, you're the God who, who meets all your ends. And you're the God of means as well as ends. And I thank you for how you're working all things together for good. For First of Anne and for the Huffmans. I thank you that what's good for the Huffmans is good for First of Anne in your economy. I thank you that what's uh, good for First of Anne moving forward is good for the Huffmans. Father, I pray for the one you, will, you have already called to be my successor here. I pray that he beats the years of Salto. I pray that he has long, fruitful ministry in this place, that you will bless him and his wife and his children, that Memphis is good to them, And first of Anne is good to them. And he, good to first of Anne. He will have no greater champion, no greater cheerleader, no greater 
desirer of his success than me because I know he's stepping into a great place, a great pulpit, a great church, and he'll be exactly the leader this church needs. And I pray, Lord, you will bless him wherever he is now. If he's in a season of waiting and yet to be found by this church, or if he's in a church now and yet to know he is to go, that you will bring him in your good time to this good place and he'll have a good ministry. Thank you for your care and your kindness to us, how you have blessed my family through this church. Lord, uh, thank you for 18 years of life and living here, for friendships that go on, for everything you used to teach me and to show me personally as a pastor how to do it. Thank you for even meeting me in my mistakes and my failures through the, through the years. At times I've had to double back around and apologize to people. At times I've had to confess to you and to other leaders, hey, I, I don't know that I know what I'm doing right now. And you've always met me in that. And I know you'll meet me in the next place too. And I pray for, pray for that next place as well, Lord, that this church will allow me lovingly and graciously to go there and to begin to build into that community as we have been built into. Father, thank you for these session elders. Thank you for all the elders in our church. Thank you for these men who have been good to me, kind to me, forgiving to me, have believed in me, have sought to encourage me, have challenged me at points. And I thank you for all of it for how you've used them in my life and how you will continue to in memory. Lord, thank you for loving First of Anne. We pray your richest blessings on this church, your people, and we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.